Section 10 of Modern Magic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina. Modern Magic by Maximilian Schell de Vere. Chapter 5 Ghosts Part 4 Report says that she represents a Countess Cunigunde of Arlamunde, who lived in the fourteenth century and killed her two children, for which crime she was executed by order of a burgrave of Nuremberg. History, however, knows nothing of such an event, and the White Lady does not appear till 1486, when she is first seen in the old palace at Bayreuth. This was nothing but a trick of the courtiers. Whenever they desired to leave the dismal town and the uncomfortable building, one of the court ladies personated the ghost, and occasionally even two white ladies were seen at the same time. In 1540 the ghost met with a tragic fate. It had appeared several times in the castle of Margrave Albert the warrior, and irritated the prince to such a degree that he at last seized it one night and hurled it headlong down the long staircase. The morning dawn revealed his chancellor, Christopher Strass, who had betrayed his master and now paid with a broken neck for his bold imposture. After this catastrophe, the white lady was not seen for nearly a hundred years, when she suddenly reappeared in Bayreuth. In the year 1677, the then reigning Margrave of Brandenburg found her one day sitting in his own chair, and was terrified. The next day he rode out, fell from his horse, and was instantly killed. From this time the White Lady became a part of the history of the House of Brandenburg, accompanying the princes to Berlin, and making it her duty to forewarn the illustrious family of any impending calamity. King Frederick I saw her distinctly, but other sovereigns discerned only a vague outline, and now and then the nose and eyes, while all the rest was closely veiled. In the old palace at Bayreuth there exist to this day two portraits of the white lady, one in white, as she appeared of old, and very beautiful, the other in black satin, with her hair powdered and dressed after more modern fashion. There is no likeness between the two faces. The ghost was evidently a good patriot, 
for she disturbed French officers who were quartered there, in the new palace as well as in the old, and as late as 1806 thoroughly frightened a number of generals who had laughed at the credulity of the Germans. In 1809 General Despain roused his aides in the depth of night by fearful cries, and when they rushed in he was found lying in the center of the room, under the bedstead. He told them that the white lady, in a costume of black and white, resembling one of the portraits, had appeared and threatened to strangle him. In the struggle she had dragged the bedstead to the middle of the room and there upset it. The room was thoroughly searched at his command, the hangings removed from the walls, and the whole floor taken up, but no trace was found of any opening through which a person might have entered. The doors had been guarded by sentinels. The general left the place immediately, looking upon the vision as a warning of impending evil, and sure enough, a few days later, he found his death upon the battlefield of Aspern. Even the great Napoleon, whose superstition was generally thought to be confined to his faith in his star, would not lodge in the rooms, haunted by the white lady, and when he reached Beirut in 1812, a suite of rooms was prepared for him in another wing of the palace. It was, however, noticed that even there his night's rest must have been interrupted, for on the next morning he was remarkably nervous and out of humor, murmuring repeatedly, C'est maudit château, and declaring that he would never again stay at the place. When he returned to that neighborhood in 1813, he refused to occupy the rooms that had been prepared for him, and continued his journey far into the night, rather than remain at Beirut. The town was, however, forever relieved of its ill fame after 1822. It is not without interest that in the same year the steward of the royal palace died, and report says in his rooms were found a number of curiosities, apparently connected with the white lady's costume. If this be so, his ardent patriotism and fierce hatred of the French might well furnish a cue to some of the more recent apparitions. The white lady continued to appear in Berlin, and the terror she created was not even allayed by repeated discoveries of most absurd efforts at imposture. Once she turned out to be a white towel, agitated by a strong draught between two windows. At another time it was a kitchen maid on an errand of love, and a third time an old cook taking an airing 
in the deserted rooms. She appeared once more in the month of February, 1820, announcing, as many believed, the death of the reigning monarch, which took place in June, and quite recently, 1872, similar warning was given shortly before the emperor's brother, Prince Albrecht, died in his palace. White ladies are, however, by no means an exclusive privilege of the House of Brandenburg. Scotland has its ancient legends, skillfully used in novel, poem, and opera, and Italy boasts of a Donna Bianca at Colalta in the Marsa Trivigiana, of whom Byron spoke as if he had never doubted her existence. Ireland has in like manner the Banshee, who warns with her plaintive voice the descendants of certain old families, whenever a great calamity threatens one of the members. Curiously enough, she clings to these once powerful, but now often wretchedly poor families, as if pride of descent and attachment to old splendor prevailed, even in the realms of magic. Historical ghosts play, nevertheless, a prominent part in all countries. Lily, Baxter, and Clarendon all relate the remarkable warnings which preceded the murder of Villiers, Duke of Buckingham. In this case, the warning was given not to the threatened man, but to an old and faithful friend, who had already been intimate with the duke's father. He saw the latter appear to him several nights in succession, urging him to go to the duke, and after revealing to him certain peculiar circumstances, to warn him against the plots of his enemies, who threatened his life. Parker was afraid to appear ridiculous, and delayed giving the warning. But the ghost left him no peace, and at last, in order to decide him, revealed to him a secret only known to himself and his ill-fated son. The latter, when his old friend at last summoned courage to deliver the mysterious message, was at first inclined to laugh at the warning. But when Parker mentioned the father's secret, he turned pale, and declared only the evil one could have entrusted it to mortal man. Nevertheless, he took no steps to rid himself of his traitorous friend, and continued his sad life as before. The father's ghost thereupon appeared once more to Parker, with deep sadness in his features, and holding a knife in his hand, with which, he said, his unfortunate son would be murdered. Parker, whose own impending death had been predicted at the same time, once more waited upon the great duke, but again in vain. He was rudely sent back 
and requested not to trouble the favorite's peace any more by his foolish dreams. A few days afterwards, Lieutenant Felton assassinated the Duke with precisely such a knife as Parker had seen in his visions. A similar occurrence is related of the famous Duchess of Mazarin, the favorite of Charles the Second, and Madame de Beauclerc, who stood in the same relation to James the Second. The two ladies, who were bosom friends, had pledged their word to each other that she who died first should appear to the survivor and inform her of the nature of the future state. The Duchess died, but as no message came from her, her friend denied stoutly and persistently the immortality of the soul. But many years later, when the promise was long forgotten, the Duchess suddenly was seen one night gliding softly through the room, and looking sweetly at her friend, whispering to her, quote, Beauclerc, between twelve and one o'clock tonight, you will be near me. The poor lady died at the appointed hour. Nork, Existence of Spirits, page 260. Less well authenticated is the account of a warning given to King George I shortly before his death, although it was generally believed throughout England at the time it occurred. The report was that the Queen, Sophia, repeatedly showed herself to her husband, beseeching him to break off his intercourse with his beautiful friend, Lady Horatia. As these requests availed nothing, and the monarch refused even to believe in the reality of her appearance, she at last tied a knot in a lace collar, declaring that, quote, if mortal fingers could untie the knot, the king and Lady Horatia might laugh at her words. End quote. The fair lady tried her best to undo it, but giving it up in despair, she threw the collar into the fire. The king, highly excited, snatched the lace from the burning coals, but in so doing, touched with it the light gauze dress of his companion. In her terror, she ran with great swiftness through room after room, thus fanning the flames into a blaze, and perished amid excruciating pains. The king, it is well known, died only two months later. A case which created a very great sensation at the time when it happened and became generally known through the admirable manner in which it was narrated by the eloquent Bernardine de Saint-Pierre, Journal de Trevoux, Volume 8, was that of the priest Bezuel. When a young man of fifteen and at college, he contracted an intimate friendship 
with the son of a royal official, called De Fontaine. The two friends often spoke of future life, and when parted in 1696, they signed with their blood a solemn compact, in which they agreed that the first who died should appear after death to the survivor. They wrote to each other constantly, and frequently alluded in their letters to the agreement. A year after their parting, Bethuel happened to be one day in the fields delivering a message to some workmen when he suddenly fell down fainting. As he was in perfect health, he knew not what to think of this accident, but when it occurred a second and a third time at the same hour on the two following days, he became seriously uneasy. On the last occasion, however, he fell into a trance in which he saw nothing around him, but beheld his friend De Fontaine, who seized him by the arm and led him some thirty yards aside. The workmen saw him go there, as if obeying a guardian hand, and converse with an unseen person for three quarters of an hour. The young man heard here from his friend's lips that he had been drowned while bathing in the river Orne on the day and at the hour when Bethuel had had his first fainting fit, that a companion had endeavored to save him, but when seized by the foot by the drowning man, had kicked him on the chest, and thus caused him to sink to the bottom. Bethuel inquired after all the details and received full answers, but none to questions about the future life. Nevertheless, the apparition continued to speak fluently but calmly, and requested Bethuel to make certain communications to his kinsman, and to repeat the seven penitential psalms, which he ought to have said himself as a penance. It also mentioned the work in which De Fontaine had been engaged up to the day of his death, and some names which he had cut in the bark of a tree near the town in which he lived. Then it disappeared. Bethuel was not able to carry out his friend's wishes, although the arm by which he had been seized reminded him daily of his duty by a severe pain. After a month, the drowned man appeared twice more, urging his requests, and saying each time at the end of the interview, Beath, Beath, just as he had been accustomed to do when in life. At last, the young priest found the means to do his friend's bidding. The pain in the arm ceased instantly, and his health remained perfect to the end of his life. When he reached Caen, where De Fontaine had perished, 
he found everything precisely as he had been told in his visions, and two years afterwards he discovered by chance even the tree with the names cut in the bark. The amiable Abbé de Saint-Pierre does his best to explain the whole occurrence as a natural series of very simple accidents. There can be, however, no doubt of the exceptionable character of the leading features of the event, and the priest, from whose own account the facts are derived, must evidently in his trance have been endowed with powers of clairvoyance. In the first part of this century, a book appeared in Germany, which led to a very general and rather violent discussion of the whole subject. It was written by a Dr. Wotzel, whose mind had, no doubt, been long engaged in trying to solve mysteries like that of the future life, since he had early come in contact with strange phenomena. The father of a dear friend of his, having fainted in consequence of receiving a serious wound, was very indignant at being roused from the state of perfect bliss which he had enjoyed during the time. He affirmed that in the short interval he had visited his brother in Berlin, whom he found sitting in a bower under a large linden tree, surrounded by his family and a few friends, and engaged in drinking coffee. Upon entering the garden, his brother had risen, advanced towards him, and asked him what had brought him so unexpectedly to Berlin. A few days after the fainting fit, a letter arrived from that city, inquiring what could have happened on that day and at that hour, and reciting all that the old gentleman had reported as having been done during his unconsciousness. Nor had the latter been seen by his brother only, but quite as distinctly by the whole company present. His image had, however, vanished again as soon as his brother had attempted to touch him. Wutzel, page 215. From his work, we learn that he had begged his wife on her deathbed to appear to him after death, and she had promised to do so. But soon after, her mind became so uneasy about the probable effects of her pledge that her husband released her and abandoned all thoughts on the subject. Several weeks later, he was sitting in a locked room when suddenly a heavy draught of air rushed through it. The light was nearly blown out. A small window in an alcove sounded as if it were opened, and in an instant the faint, luminous form of his wife was standing before the amazed widower. She said in a soft, 
scarcely audible voice, Charles, I am immortal. We shall see each other again. Wurzel jumped up and tried to seize the form, but it vanished like thin mist, and he felt a strong electric shock. He saw the same vision and heard the same words repeatedly. His wife appeared as he had last seen her lying in her coffin. The second time, a dog, who had been often petted by her, wagged his tail and walked caressingly around the apparition. The book, which appeared in 1804 and gave a full account of all the phenomena, met with much opposition and contempt. A number of works were written against it. Wieland ridiculed it in his Euthanasia, and others denounced it as a mere repetition of former statements. The author was, however, not abashed by the storm he had raised. He offered to swear to the truth of all he had stated before the great council of the University of Leipzig, and published a second work in which he developed his theory of ghosts with great ability. According to his view, the spirits of the departed are for some time after death surrounded by a luminous essence, which may, under peculiarly favorable circumstances, become visible to human eyes, but which, according to the weakness of our mind, is generally transformed by the imagination only into the more familiar form of deceased friends. He insists, besides, upon it that all he saw and heard was an impression made upon the outer senses only, and that nothing in the whole occurrence originated in his inner consciousness. As there was nothing to be gained for him by his persistent assertions, it seems but fair to give them all the weight they may deserve, till the whole subject is more fully understood. Another remarkable case is that of a Mr. and Mrs. James, at whose house the Reverend Mr. Mills, a Methodist preacher, was usually entertained when his duties brought him to their place of residence. One year he found they had both died since his last visit, but he stayed with the orphaned children and retired to the same room which he had always occupied. The adjoining room was the former chamber of the aged couple, and here he began soon to hear a whispering and moving about, just as he used to hear it when they were still alive. This recalled to him the reports he had heard in the town, that the departed had been frequently seen by their numerous friends and kinsmen. The next day he called upon a plain 
but very pious woman who urged him to share her simple meal with her. He consented, but what was his amazement when she said to him at the close of the meal, quote, Now, Mr. Mills, I have a favor to ask of you. I want you to preach my funeral sermon next Sunday. I am going to die next Friday at three o'clock. When the astonished minister asked her to explain the strange request, she replied that Mr. and Mrs. James had come to her to tell her that they were ineffably happy, but still bound by certain ties to the world below. They had added that they had not died, as people believed, without disposing of their property, but that, in order to avoid dissensions among their children, they had been allowed to return and to make the place known where the will was concealed. They had tried to confer with Mr. Mills, but his timidity had prevented it. Now they had come to her, as the minister was going to dine that day at her house. Finally, they had informed her of her approaching death on the day she had mentioned. The Methodist minister looked, aided by the heirs and a legal man, for the will, and found it at the place indicated. Nanny, the poor woman, died on Friday and her funeral sermon was preached by him on the following Sunday. Reckenberg, page 182. A certain Dr. T. von Welser published in 1870, in Dutch, a work called Christus Redivivus, in which he relates a number of very remarkable appearances of deceased persons and among these the following. Quote, a friend of the author's, a man of sound, practical mind, and a declared enemy of all superstition, lost his mother, whom he had most assiduously nursed for six weeks, and who died in full faith in her Redeemer. A few days later, his nephew was to be married in a distant province, but although no near kinsman of his, except his mother, could be present, he, the uncle, could not make up his mind so soon after his grievous loss to attend a wedding. This decision irritated and wounded his sister deeply, and led to warm discussions, in which other relatives also took her side, and which threatened to cause a serious breach in the family. The mourner was deeply afflicted by the scene, and at night, having laid the matter before God, he fell asleep with the thought on his mind, What would your mother think of it? Suddenly, while yet wide awake, he heard a voice saying, Go. Although he recognized the voice instantly, 
he thought it might be his sister's, and drew the bed-curtain aside to see who was there. To his amazement he saw his mother's form standing by his bedside. Terrified and bewildered, he dropped the curtain, turned his face to the wall, and tried to collect his thoughts. But at the same time he heard the same voice say once more, Go. He drew the curtain again, and saw his mother as before, looking at him with deep love and gentle urgency. This excites him so that he can control himself no longer. He jumps up and tries to seize the form. It draws back and gradually dissolves before his eye. Now only, he recalls, how often he has conversed with his mother about the future life and the possibility of communication after death. He becomes calm, decides to attend the wedding, and sleeps soundly till the morning. The next day he finds his heart relieved of a sore burden. He joins his friends at the wedding, and finds, to his infinite delight, that by his presence only a serious difficulty is avoided, and peace is preserved in a numerous and influential family. In this case, the effect of the mind on the imagination is strikingly illustrated, and although the vision of the mother may have existed purely in the son's mind, the practical result was precisely the same as if a spirit had really appeared in tangible shape so as to be seen by the outward eye. End quote. In some instances, phenomena, like those described, are apparently the result of a disturbed conscience, and occur, therefore, in frequent repetition. Already, Plutarch, in his Life of Simon, tells us that the Spartan general, Pausanias, had murdered a fair maiden, Cleonis, because she overthrew a torch in his tent, and he imagined himself to be attacked by assassins. The ghost of the poor girl, whom he had dishonored in life, and so foully killed, appeared to him, and threatened him with such fearful disgrace, that he was terrified, and hastened to Heraclea, where necromancers summoned the spirits of the departed by their vile arts. They called up Cleonice at the great commander's request, and she replied reluctantly that the curse would not leave him till he went to Sparta. Pausanias did so, and found his death there. The only way, says the historian of the same name, in which he could ever be relieved of such fearful guilt. Baxter also tells us, page 30, of a reverend Mr. Franklin, 
whose young son repeatedly saw a lady and received at her hands quite painful correction thus when he was bound apprentice to a surgeon in sixteen sixty one and refused to return home upon being ordered to do so she appeared to him and when he resisted her admonitions energetically boxed his ears the poor boy was in bad health and seemed to suffer so much that at last the surgeon determined to consult his father who lived on the island of ely on the morning of the day which he spent travelling the boy cried out o oh, mistress here's the lady again and at the same time a noise as of a violent blow was heard the child hung his head and fell back dead in the same hour the surgeon and the boy's father sitting together in consultation saw a lady enter the room glance at them angrily walk up and down a few times and disappear again the fancy that murdered persons reappear in some shape after death for the purpose of wreaking their vengeance upon their enemies is very common among all nations and has often been vividly embodied in legends and ballads the stories of hamlet and of don giovanni are based upon this belief and the older chronicles abound with similar cases belonging to an age when violence was more frequent and justice less prompt than in our day thus we are told in the annals of the famous castle of weinsberg in suabia justly renowned all over the world for the rare instance of marital attachment exhibited by its women that a steward had wantonly murdered a peasant there thereupon disturbances of various kinds began to make the castle uninhabitable a black shape was seen walking about and breathing hot and hateful odors upon all it met while the steward became an object of special persecution the townspeople at first were skeptic and laughed at his reports but soon the black visitor was seen on the ramparts of the town also and created within the walls the same sensation as up at the castle the good citizens at last observed a solemn fast day and performed a pilgrimage to a holy shrine at heilbrum but all was in vain and the disturbances and annoyances increased in frequency and violence till at last the unfortunate steward died from vexation and sorrow when the whole ceased and peace was restored to town and castle alike crucius 
Suabian Chronicles, 2, page 417. Another case of this kind is connected with a curious token of gratitude exhibited by the gratified victim. A president of the Parliament of Toulouse, returning from Paris towards the end of the seventeenth century, was compelled by an accident to stop at a poor country tavern. During the night there appeared to him an old man, pale and bleeding, who declared that he was the father of the present owner of the house, that he had been murdered by his own son, cut to pieces, and buried in the garden. He appealed to the president to investigate the matter and to avenge his murder. The judge was so forcibly impressed by his vision that he ordered search to be made, and lo, the body of the murdered man was found, and the son, thunderstruck by the mysterious revelation, acknowledged his guilt, was tried, and in course of time died on the scaffold. But the murdered man was not satisfied yet. He showed himself once more to the president, and asked how he could prove his gratitude. The latter asked to be informed of the hour of his death, that he might fitly prepare himself, and was promised that he should know it a week in advance. Many years afterwards, a fierce knocking was heard at the gate of the president's house in Toulouse. The porter opened, but saw no one. The knocking was repeated, but this time also the servants who had rushed to the spot found nobody there. When it was heard a third time, they were thoroughly frightened, and hastened to inform their master. The latter went to the door, and there saw the well-remembered form of his nightly visitor, who told him that he would die in eight days. He told his friends and his family what had happened, but only met with laughter, as he was in perfect health, and nothing seemed more improbable than his sudden death. But as he sat, on the eighth day, at table with his family, a book was mentioned which he wished to see, and he got up to look for it in his library. Instantly a shot is heard. The guests rush out and find him lying on the floor and weltering in his blood. Upon inquiry, it appeared that a man, desperately in love with the chambermaid and jealous of a rival, had mistaken the president for the latter and murdered him with a pistol. Desegur, Galerie Morale et Politique, page 221. Among the numerous accounts of visions which seem to have been caused by an instinctive 
and perfectly unconscious perception of human remains, the story of the Reverend Mr. Lindner in Königsberg is perhaps the best authenticated, and from the character of the man to whom the revelation was made, the most trustworthy. It is fully reported by Professor Ermin of Strasbourg in Case Archive 10, 3, page 143. The minister, a modest, pious man, awoke in the middle of the night, and saw by the bright moonlight which was shining into the room another minister in gown and bands, standing before his open Bible, apparently searching for some quotation. He had a small child in his arms, and a larger child stood by his side. After some time spent in speechless astonishment, Mr. Lindner exclaimed, All good spirits praise God. Whereupon the stranger turned round, went up to him, and offered three times to shake hands with him. Mr. Lindner, however, refused to do so, gazing at the same time intently at his features and after a while he found himself looking at the air, for all had disappeared. It was a long time afterwards, when, sauntering through the cloisters of his church, he was suddenly arrested by a portrait which bore all the features of the minister he had seen on that night. It was one of his predecessors in office, who had died nearly fifty years ago in rather bad odor, reports having been current at the time, as very old men still living testified, that he had had several illegitimate children, of whose fate nothing was known. But there was a still further sequel to the minister's strange adventure. In the course of the next year his study was enlarged, and for that purpose the huge German stove had to be removed, to the horror of the workmen and of Mr. Lindner, who was promptly called to the spot. The remains of several children were found carefully concealed beneath the solid structure. As there is no reason to suspect self-delusion in the reverend man, and the vision cannot well be ascribed to any outward cause, it must be presumed that his sensitive nature was painfully affected by the skeletons in his immediate neighborhood, and that this unconscious feeling, acting through his imagination, gave form and shape to the impressions made upon his nerves. In another case, the principal person was a candidate of divinity, Billing, well known as being of a highly sensitive disposition and given to hallucinations. 
the extreme suffering which the presence of human remains caused to his whole system had been previously already observed the great german fabulist pfeffel a blind man once took billing's arm and went with him into the garden to take an airing the poet noticed that when they came to a certain place the young man hesitated and his arm trembled as if it had received an electric shock when he was asked what was the matter he replied oh nothing but upon passing over the spot a second time the same tremor made itself felt pressed by pfeffel the young man at last acknowledged that he experienced at that spot the sensation which the presence of a corpse always produced in him and offered to go there with the poet at night in order to prove to him the correctness of his feelings when the two friends went to the garden after dark billing perceived at once a faint glimmer of light above the spot he stopped at a distance of about ten yards and after a while declared that he saw a female figure hovering above the place about five feet high with the right arm across her bosom and the left hand hanging down by her side when the poet advanced and stood on the fatal spot the young man affirmed that the image was on his right or his left before or behind him and when pfeffel struck around him with his cane it produced the effect as if he were cutting through a flame which instantly reunited the same phenomena were witnessed a second time by a number of pfeffel's relations several days afterwards while the young man was absent the poet caused the place in the garden to be dug up and at a depth of several feet beneath a layer of lime a human skeleton was discovered it was removed the hole filled up and all smoothed over again after billing's return the poet took him once more into the garden and this time the young man walked over the fatal spot without experiencing the slightest sensation Kieser, archive etc page three twenty six it was this remarkable experience which led baron reichenbach to verify it by leading one of his sensitive patients a miss reichel at night to the great cemetery of vienna as soon as she reached the place she perceived everywhere a sea of flames brightest over the new graves weaker over others and quite faint here and there in a few cases these lights reached a height of nearly four feet 
but generally they had more the appearance of luminous mists so that her hand held over the place where she saw one seemed to be enveloped in a cloud of fire she was in no way troubled by the phenomena which she had often previously observed and baron reichenbach thought he saw in them a confirmation of his theory about the odd light there can be however little doubt that the luminous appearance perceptible though it be only to unusually sensitive persons is the result of chemical decomposition which has a peculiar influence over these persons hence no doubt the numerous accounts of will-o'-the-wisps and ghostly lights seen in graveyards the frightened beholder is nearly always laughed at or heartily abused and more than one poor child has fallen a victim to the absurd theory of quote, curing it of foolish fears end quote there can be no doubt that light does appear flickering above churchyards and that there is something more than mere idle superstition in the corpse candles of the welsh and in the elf candles of the scotch which are seen with foreboding weight in the house of sickness betokening near dissolution at the same time it is well known that living persons also have under certain circumstances given out light and especially from their head the cases of moses whose face shone with unbearable brightness and of the martyr stephen are familiar to all and the halo with which artists surround the heads of saints bears eloquent evidence of the universal and deeply rooted belief but science also has fully established the fact that light appears as a real and unmistakable luminous efflux from the human body alike in health and in mortal sickness by far the most common case of such emission of light is the emission of sparks from the hair when combed before and during the electrical dust storms in india this phenomenon is of frequent occurrence in the hair of both sexes in dry weather and when the hair also is dry and especially immediately before thunderstorms the same sparks are seen in all countries dr phipson mentions the case of a relative of his quote, whose hair exactly one yard and a quarter long when combed somewhat rapidly with a black gutta-percha comb emits sheets of light upward of a foot 
in length, the light being composed of hundreds of small electric sparks, the snapping noise of which is distinctly heard. End quote. But electric light is sometimes given off by the human body itself, not merely from the hair. A memorable instance of this phenomenon is recorded by Dr. Kane in the journal of his last voyage to the polar regions. He and a companion, Peterson, had gone to sleep in a hut during intense cold and on awaking in the night found, to their horror, that their lamp, their only hope, had gone out. Peterson tried in vain to get light from a pocket pistol, and then Kane resolved to take the pistol himself. Quote, it was so intensely dark, he says, that I had to grope for it, and in so doing, I touched his hand. At that instant, the pistol in Peterson's hand became distinctly visible. A pale bluish light, slightly tremulous, but not broken, covered the metallic parts of it. The stock, too, was distinctly visible, as if by reflected light. And to the amazement of both of us, also, the thumb and two fingers with which Peterson was holding it. The creases, wrinkles, and circuit of nails being clearly defined upon the skin. As I took the pistol, my hand became illuminated also. This luminous and doubtless electric phenomenon took place in highly exceptional circumstances, and is the only case recorded in recent times. But a far more remarkable phenomenon of a similar kind is mentioned by Bartholin, who gives an account of a lady in Italy, whom he rightly styles Mulier Splendens whose body became phosphorescent, or rather shone with electric radiations, when slightly rubbed with a piece of dry linen. In this case, the luminosity appears to have been normal, certainly very frequent under ordinary circumstances, and the fact is well attested. Mr. B. H. Patterson mentions in the journal Belgravia, October 1872, that he saw the flannel with which he had rubbed his body emit blue sparks, while at the same time he heard a crackling sound. These facts prove that the human body, even in ordinary life, is capable of giving out luminous undulations, while science teaches us that they appear quite frequently in disease. Here again, Dr. Phipson 
mentions several cases as the result of his reading. One of these is that of a woman in Milan, during whose illness a so-called phosphoric light glimmered about her bed. Another remarkable case is recorded by Dr. Marsh in a volume on the Evolution of Light from the Human Subject, and reads thus, quote, About an hour and a half before my sister's death, we were struck by luminous appearances proceeding from her head in a diagonal direction. She was, at the time, in a half-recumbent position, and perfectly tranquil. The light was pale as the moon, but quite evident to Mama, myself, and sisters who were watching over her at the time. One of us at first thought it was lightning, till shortly afterwards we perceived a sort of tremulous glimmer playing around the head of the bed, and then, recollecting that we had read something of a similar nature, having been observed previous to dissolution, we had candles brought into the room, fearing that our dear sister would perceive the luminosity, and that it might disturb the tranquillity of her last moments. The other case relates to an Irish peasant and is recorded from personal observation by Dr. Donovan in the Dublin Medical Press in 1870 as follows. Quote, I was sent to see Harrington in December. He had been under the care of my predecessor and had been entered as a physical patient. He was under my care for about five years, and I had discontinued my visits when the report became general that mysterious lights were seen every night in his cabin. The subject attracted a great deal of attention. I determined to submit the matter to the ordeal of my own senses, and for this purpose I visited the cabin for fourteen nights. On three nights only I witnessed anything unusual. Once I perceived a luminous fog resembling the aurora borealis, and twice I saw scintillations like the sparkling phosphorescence exhibited by C. infusoria. From the close scrutiny I made, I can with certainty say that no imposition was either employed or attempted. The only explanation ever offered by competent authority of the luminous radiations from persons in disease ascribes them to an efflux or escape of the nerve force, which is known to be kindred in its nature to electricity, transmuting itself into luminosity 
as it leaves the body. The seeress of Prevorst reported that she saw the nerves as shining threads, and even from the eyes of some persons rays of light seemed to her to flash continually. Other somnambulists also, as well as mesmerized persons, have seen the hair of persons shine with a multitude of sparks, while the breath of their mouth appeared as a faint luminous mist. The same luminosity is, finally, perceived at times in graveyards, and would, no doubt, have led to careful investigation more frequently if observers had not so often been suspected of superstitious apprehensions. In the case of Baron Reichenbach's patients, however, no such difficulty was to be feared. They saw, invariably, light, bluish flames hovering over many graves, and what made the phenomena more striking still was the fact that these moving lights were only seen on recent graves, as if naturally dependent upon the process of decomposition. If we connect this with our experience of luminosity seen in decaying vegetables, in spoiled meat, and in diseased persons, we shall be prepared to believe that even so-called ghost stories, in which mysterious lights play a prominent part, are by no means necessarily without foundation. Cases in which deceased persons have made themselves known to survivors, or have produced, by some as yet unexplained agency, an impression upon them through other senses than the sight, are very rare. Occasionally, however, the hearing is thus affected, and sweet music is heard, in token, as it were, of the continued intercourse between the dead and the living. One instance may serve as an illustration. The Countess A. had all her life been remarkable for the strange delight she took in clocks. Not a room in her castle, but had its large or small clock, and all these she insisted upon winding up herself at the proper time. Her favorite, however, was a very curious and most costly clock in her sitting-room, which had the form of a Gothic church, and displayed in the steeple a small dial, behind which the works were concealed. At the full hour a hymn was played by a kind of music-box attached to the mechanism. 
she allowed no one to touch this clock, and used to sit before it as the hand approached the hour, waiting for the hymn to be heard. At last she was taken ill and confined for seven weeks, during which the clock could not be wound up, and then she died. For special reasons the interment had to take place on the evening of the next day, and, as the castle was far from any town, the preparations took so much time that it was nearly midnight before the body could be moved from the bedroom to the drawing-room where the usual ceremonies were to be performed. The transfer was accomplished under the superintendence of her husband, who followed the coffin, and in the presence of a large number of friends and dependents, while the minister led the sad cortege. At the moment when the coffin approached the favorite clock, it suddenly began to strike, but instead of twelve, it gave out thirteen strokes, and then followed the melody of a well-known hymn. Quote, Let us with boldness now proceed on the dark path to a new life. End quote. The minister, who happened to have been sitting a little while before by the Count's side, just beneath the clock, and had mournfully noticed its silence after so many years, was thunderstruck, and could not recover his self-control for some time. The Count, on the contrary, saw in the accident a solemn warning from on high, and henceforth laid aside the frivolity which he had so far shown in his life as well as in his principles. Evening Post, Germany, 1840, number 187. There are, finally, certain phenomena belonging to this part of magic, which have been very generally attributed to an agency in which natural forces and supernatural beings held a nearly equal share. They suggest the interesting but difficult question whether visions and ecstasy can extend to large numbers of men at once. And yet, without some such supposition, the armies in the clouds, the wild huntsmen of the Ardennes, and like appearances, cannot well be explained. Here also no little weight must be attached to ancient superstitions, which have become, as it were, a part of a nation's faith. Thus, all northern Germany has, from the earliest days, been familiar 
with the idea of the great Woden ranging through its dark forests at the head of the Valkyries and the heroes fallen in battle, while his wolves and his raven followed him on his knightly course. When Christianity changed the old gods of the German race into devils and demons, Woden became very naturally the wild huntsman who is now escorted by men of violence, bloody tyrants, and criminals, often grievously mutilated or altogether headless. There can be little doubt but that these visions also rested upon some natural substructure. Exceptional atmospheric disturbances, hurricanes coming from afar and crashing through mighty forests, or even the modest tramp of a band of poachers heard afar off, under favorable circumstances, by timid ears. The very fact that the favorite time for such phenomena is the winter solstice favors this supposition. They are, however, by no means limited to seasons and days, for as late as 1842 a number of wheat-cutters left in a panic the field in which they were engaged, because they believed they heard Frau Holly with her hellish company, and saw faithful Eckhart as he walked steadily before the procession, warning all he met to stand aside and escape from the fatal sight. An occurrence of the kind, which took place in 1857, was fortunately fully explained by careful observers. The cause was an immense flock of wild geese, whose strange cries resembled, in a surprising manner, the barking of a pack of hounds during a hunt. Another occurrence, during the night of January 30, 1849, through the whole neighborhood of Basel in Switzerland into painful consternation. The air was suddenly filled with a multitude of whining voices, whose agony pierced the hearts of all who heard them. Men and beasts seemed to be suffering unutterable anguish, and to be driven with furious speed from the mountainside into a valley near Magden. Here all ended in an instant amid rolling thunder and fearful flashes of lightning. A fierce storm arising in distant clefts and crevices, and carrying possibly fragments of rock, ice, and moraine along with it, seems here to have been 
the determining cause. Another class of phenomena of this kind relates to the great battles that have at times decided the fate of the world. Thus Pausanias already tells us, Attica 32, and so do other historians of Greece, how the plain of Marathon resounded for nearly four centuries every year with the clash of arms and the cries of soldiers. It was evidently the deep and lasting impression made upon a highly sensitive nation, which here was bequeathed from generation to generation, and on the day of the battle, when all was excitement, resulted in the perception of sounds which had no real existence. Events of such colossal proportions, which determine in a few hours the fate of great nations, leave naturally a powerful impress upon contemporaries not only but also upon the children of that race such was among others the fearful battle on the catalanian fields in which the visigoths and Aetius conquered attila and one hundred and sixty-two thousand warriors were slain it was at the time reported that the intense bitterness and exasperation of the armies continued even after the battle, and that for three days the spirits of the fallen were contending with each other with unabated fury. The report grew into a legend, till a firm belief was established that the battle was fought year after year on the memorable day, and that any visitor might behold the passionate spirits as they rose from their graves, armed with their ancient weapons and filled with undiminished fury. One by one, the soldiers of the two armies, it was said, leave their lowly graves, rise high into the air, and engage in deadly but silent strife, till they vanish in the clouds. It is well known how successfully the great German painter Kaulbach has reproduced the vision in his magnificent fresco of the Hohenschlacht. In other countries, these ghostly visions assume different forms. Thus, the neighborhood of Kerup in Livonia is in like manner renowned for a long series of fearful butcheries during the wars between the German knights and the Muscovites. There also, night after night, the shadowy battle is fought over again, but the clashing of arms and the hoarse war-cries are distinctly heard, and the pious traveller 
hastens away from the blood-soaked plains, uttering his prayers for the souls of the slain. In the highlands of Scotland also, and on the adjoining islands, most weird and gruesome sights have been watched by young and old in every generation. The dark, dismal atmosphere of those regions, the dense fogs and impenetrable mists, now rising from the sea, and now descending from the mountains, and the fierce, inclement climate, have all combined for ages to predispose the mind for the perception of such strange and mysterious phenomena. Nearly every clan and every family has its own particular ghost, and besides these, the whole nation claims a number of common visions and prophetic spirits, whose harps and wild songs are heard faintly and fearfully sounding on high. A friend of Mr. Martin, the author of a work on Second Sight, used to recite several stanzas belonging to such a prophetic song, which he had heard himself on a sad November day as it came to him through the drooping clouds and sweeping mists from the summit of a lonely mountain. At funerals also, wonderful voices were heard high in the air as they accompanied the chanting of the people below with a music not born upon earth and filling the heart with strange but sweet sadness. Nearly the same visions are seen and the same songs are heard in Sweden and Norway, proving conclusively that like climatic influences produce also a similar magic life in individuals not only, but in whole nations. For even if we are disposed to look upon these phenomena as merely strange appearances of clouds and mists, accompanied by the howling and whistling of the wind and tumbling down of rocks and gravel, there remains the uniformity with which thousands of every generation interpret these sights and sounds into weird visions and solemn chantings. It is, however, not quite so evident why the peculiar class of visions which is often erroneously called second sight, the beholding of a double, should be almost entirely confined to these same northern regions. It is, of course, not unknown to other lands also, and even holy writ seems to justify the presumption 
that the idea of a double was familiar to the people of Palestine. For the poor damsel Rhoda, who, for gladness, did not open the door at which Peter knocked, after he had been miraculously liberated, but ran to announce his presence to the friends who were assembled at the house of Mark's brother, was first called mad, and then told, It is his angel. Acts 12.13 They evidently meant, not that it was the spirit of their deceased friend, since they would have been made aware of his death, but a phantom representing his living body. But the number of authentic cases of persons who have seen their own form is vastly greater at the North than anywhere else. The Celtic superstition of the fetch, as the appearance of a person's double is there called, is too well known to require explanation. But the vision itself is one of the most interesting in the study of magic, since it exhibits most strikingly the great power which the human soul may, under peculiar circumstances, gain and exercise over its own self, leading to complete self-delusion. A case in which this strange abdication of all self-control led to most desirable consequences is mentioned by Dr. Mayo. A young man recently from Oxford once saw a friend of his enter the room in which he was dining with some companions. The newcomer, just returning from hunting, seemed to them to look unusually pale, and was evidently in a state of great excitement. After much urging, he at last confessed that he had been seriously disturbed in mind by a man who had kept him close company all the way home. This stranger, on horseback like himself, had been his exact image, down to a new bridle, his own invention, which he had tried that day for the first time. He fancied that this double was his own ghost, and an omen of his impending death. His friends advised him to confer with the head of his college. This was done, and the latter gave him much good advice, adding the hope that the warning would not be allowed to pass unimproved. It is certain that the apparition made so strong an impression upon the young man as to lead to his entire reformation, at least for a time. It is claimed by many writers that there are persons who continually have visions because they live in constant communication with spirits, although in all cases 
they have to pay a fearful penalty for this sad privilege. They are invariably diseased people, mostly women, who fall into trances, have cataleptic attacks, or suffer of even more painful maladies, and during the time of their affliction behold and converse with the inmates of another world. The most renowned of these seers was a Mrs. Hoff, who has become well known to the reading world through Dr. J. Kerner's famous work, The Seeress of Preverst. A peculiar feature in her case was the fact that the visions she had were invariably announced to bystanders by peculiar sounds, heard by all who were present. The forms assumed by her mysterious visitors varied almost infinitely. Now it was a man in a brown gown, and now a woman in white. Often, when the spirits appeared in the open air, and she tried to escape from them by running, she was bodily lifted up and hurried along so fast that her companions could not keep pace with her. It was only later in life that she fell as a patient into the hands of Dr. Kerner, who was quite distinguished as a poet, and had a great renown as a physician for insane people of a special class. His house at Weinsberg in Württemberg was filled to overflowing with persons of all classes of society, from the highest to the lowest, and all had visions. Nor was the doctor himself excluded. He also was a seer, and has given in the above-mentioned book a full and most interesting account of the diseases in connection with which magic phenomena are most frequently observed. By the aid of careful observation of actual facts, and using such revelations vouchsafed to him and others, as he believed fully trustworthy, he formed a regular theory of visions. First of all, he admits that the privilege of communing with spirits is a grievous affliction, and that all of his more thoughtful patients continually prayed to be delivered of the burden. It is evident from all he states that not only the body but the mind also suffers, and in many cases suffers unto destruction, under the effects of such exceptional powers, that in fact the lines of separation between this life and another life can never be crossed with impunity. His most interesting patient, Mrs. Hoff, presents the usual mixture of mere fanciful imagery with occasional flashes of truth. Her genuine revelations were marvelous, 
and can only be explained upon the ground of real magic but with them are mixed up the most absurd theories and the most startling contradictions she insisted however upon the fact that only those spirits could commune with mortal man who were detained in the middle realm between heaven and hell the spirits of men who were in this life unable though not unwilling to believe that quote, god could forgive their sins for the sake of christ's death end quote. she was often tried by dr kerner and others she was told that certain still living persons had died and asked to summon their spirits but she was never misled there can be no doubt that the poor woman was sincere in her statements but she was apparently unable to distinguish between real visions in a trance and the mere offspring of her imagination that her peculiarities were closely connected with her bodily condition is moreover proved by the fact that her whole family suffered in similar manner and enjoyed similar powers a brother and a sister as well as her young son all had visions and heard mysterious noises the latter were in fact perceptible to all the inmates of the strange house even the great sceptic dr strauss who once visited it heard long fearful groanings close to his amiable hostess who had fallen asleep on her sofa nor were the ghosts content with disturbing the patients and their excellent physician they made themselves known to their friends and neighbors also and even the good minister in the little town had much to suffer from nightly knockings and strange utterances dr kerner himself heard many spirits but saw only one and that only as a grayish pillar on the other hand he witnessed countless mysterious phenomena which occurred in his patient's bedrooms now he beheld mrs hoff's boots pulled off by invisible hands while she herself was lying almost inanimate in a trance on her bed and now he heard her reveal secrets which upon writing to utterly unknown persons at a great distance proved to be correctly stated what makes a thorough investigation of all these phenomena peculiarly difficult is the fact that dr kerner's house became an asylum for somnambulists as well as for real patients and that by this mixture the scientific value of his observations as regards their psychological interest 
is seriously impaired. He himself was a sincere believer in magic phenomena. Almost all of his friends and neighbors, from the humblest peasant to the most cultivated men of science, believed in him and his statements, and there can be no doubt that astonishing revelations were made and extraordinary powers became manifest in his house. But here also the difficulty of separating the few grains of truth from the great mass of willful as well as of unconscious delusion is almost overwhelming and our final judgment must be held in suspense till more light has been thrown on the subject dr kerner's son who succeeded his father at his death in eighteen sixty two still keeps up the remarkable establishment at weinsberg but exclusively for the cure of certain diseases by magnetism End of section 10